the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, I'm Jerry Boyer. Uh, Welcome to Meeting of Minds podcast. Uh, Thank you very much for listening to us today and for joining us. And I'm extremely excited about this interview, which I've been looking forward to for some time. We're speaking with N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright uh, probably needs no introduction to anyone who has uh, listened to any of the podcasts I've done or radio shows over the year. He's maybe the most prominent and influential New Testament scholar of our generation. He is the author of uh, a trilogy about the New Testament and the people of God. He's the author of the series. It's back behind us for those who are watching my video. Um, the uh, For Everyone series. Um, uh, he's delivered the prestigious Gifford lectures. Um, he's associated with Wycliffe Hall. Um, and he has a new, I believe this is his first actual full-length book of the Bible commentary, um, Galatians. Uh, N.T. Wright, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. It's nearly true. My commentary on Romans is actually quite long, but it comes within the New Interpreter's Bible. It's in volume 10 of the massive series, New Interpreter's Bible. Um, That came out, what, nearly 20 years ago now. Um, but this is the first standalone single volume commentary, the um, the Romans one, as I say. It's, it is quite a long commentary because the NI, NIB, the New Interpreter's Bible, is, is a big, massive series. But it comes in the same volume as Acts and First Corinthians. And this is part of a series as well, but not in yep. the middle of a long series. It's- no, this is this is supposedly the so they tell me the flagship for the new series which Erdman's is launching. This is commentaries for Christian formation, and uh, they wanted me to do the first one in the series and to make it on Galatians. Got it. And now I've I'm, I'm I've kindled this oh. one, so we can see it's also okay. available on Kindle. But feel free to yeah. uh, to hold okay. it up as well. Um, so, was Christian formation a force fit? for your Galatians commentary. In other words, we're doing a series on Christian formation. Can you make it work, Tom? Or is it more like, <laughs> no, finally, we're catching up with Paul in that Christian formation is actually a central theme in books like Galatians? Well, yes, I think I've had it easy. In fact, Erdman's and I have been talking about a commentary on Galatians for quite a long time. But finally, they said just a couple of years ago, listen, we've got this new series. We want this to be the the number one. What do you think about doing it? And I scratched my head and we discussed it a little bit with the editorial team. And the more I thought about it, the more actually it is a perfect fit for Galatians, much more so perhaps than more obviously so than for many New Testament books, because Galatians is where Paul says, my little children with whom I'm in labor pains again, until the Messiah be formed in you. So it, it, it is actually a natural fit. So I didn't have to try hard to make this work. It just kind of fell out naturally. Yes, and uh, I think that's literally Christian Messiah in formation, right? Uh, Paul is bringing birth to the Messiah in the form of of birthing a Christian community, which which is pretty weird imagery (laughs) 
for your standard Christian conversation. There's a lot in Galatians that's like, if, if it weren't in Galatians and someone stood up in the pulpit and said this stuff, they'd be, people yes. would be picking up pitchforks. I, I think that may be true, and it may well be true if people actually take seriously some of the points that I've been arguing in the commentary about what's actually going on in Galatians, because it's totally unlike, as you'll know if you've read it, totally unlike the normal post-Reformation commentary, which is all about how I get saved and do I have to do good works to go to heaven and so on, um, which actually isn't what Galatians is about at all. So I'm waiting for the for the bricks to start flying um, when when people when reviewers get their teeth into it. Yes, I think. Sorry, the- I'm Mixing, mixing my metaphors. Uh, uh, that's fine. Paul does that sometimes too. You're in good company. Yeah, he does. Uh, so, um, uh, yes, I expect the discernment bloggers, uh, once they've had a chance to get through all 400 pages, to accuse you <laughs> to accuse you of bringing another gospel, um, yeah, as yeah. opposed to even though you're explicating Paul's uh, explication of the original gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. That's it. I, I think you're right. And uh, uh, perhaps you can let me know if you see any uh, interesting reviews before I do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you want it. Uh, sometimes I feel like um, uh, when, well, I, when I read your writing, sometimes I can feel the pain between the lines of the anticipation <coughs> of yeah. the blowback. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, so- there is there is a bit of that. I mean, I'm I'm old enough now not really to mind, though I still do mind because naturally, when you write a, a commentary on the Bible, what you're saying to people is, um, please, can you uh, read the read this book in this way? Because I think if you do, you'll find that God has fresh light to break out of His holy word. And you want the Messiah to be formed in them. You want the Messiah to be. To be uh, well, to be formed exactly. in in yourself and in your detractors. I mean, if you're truly Pauline, that's another exactly. division, right? Paul's talking about all these divisions, right? Yeah, uh, and Jew it, and Gentile. It just so happens, yeah. and it just yeah. so happens, weirdly, in a way that um, I was working on this at the time when, in a fresh way, because of the George Floyd business a year ago and so on, both America and Britain have been talking about the relationship between different ethnic or racial groups. And though that's a general social question, not a church question, it's very obvious that the churches on both sides of the Atlantic need to be faced with this question afresh. And since that is what Galatians is all about, well, maybe it might just help us to get our heads and our hearts into the right mode. Maybe it's a social question with a church answer or a potential well, church absolutely. answer. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, the way I would put it is that the church from the beginning, from its first days in, certainly in Antioch, and actually even in Jerusalem, but certainly in Antioch, the church always was a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-polychrome, um, multilingual um, organization. It's like in Revelation, um, a, a great company of many nations and kindreds and tribes and tongues all together praising God and the Lamb. That's the vision of the church in the New Testament. And we, in the last four or 500 years, have colluded with a division down ethnic lines without even realizing just how unbiblical we were being, because we'd taken our eye off that ball and were looking instead at theories of salvation about, about going to heaven, which Galatians isn't about. Was there anything else like that in the ancient, let's, the ancient world's probably a little too broad. We don't necessarily know well, what's going on in China or India, but in the Oikumene, yeah. in the known, in the Roman know. world, is there anything else like that? 
No. As far as we know, the answer is absolutely not. The closest you might get would be in the Roman army, which recruited soldiers from all over, from the provinces. But A, they would all be men. B, they would all be signed up to be uh, Caesar loyalists, as it were. But there there was a sort of a polychrome, multi-ethnic dimension to the Roman army. The Roman imperial civil service... Voted to death instead of life. I'm sorry, well, I interrupted you. Exactly. Right? Yes. No, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, and so when Paul uses the imagery of military um, weapons and so on, as he does in Ephesians 6 or 1 Thessalonians 5, there is a kind of an echo across that, well, they are doing it like that, but of course we do it like this. But the, the other parallel, which you have to say, is that the synagogue communities embraced people right around the Mediterranean world, but of course they were all either Jews or proselytes, and that's exactly the point, that here you've got a community which includes Jews and Gentiles on equal terms and men and women on equal terms. It's one of the things we often fail to note about the debate about circumcision, that that only applies to males, um, that males wear the Jewish badge of membership, whereas baptism, uh, which is a rough equivalent, not an exact equivalent, but a rough equivalent for Paul, is both um, male and female. And so there is, I I hate to use the word inclusive because that word is so abused these days, but there is this sense of a welcome of all and sundry on the basis of the transformation which comes through baptism and faith. I, through the Lord, died to the law. I am crucified with the Messiah. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but the Messiah lives in me. That is then the same for everybody, whether they're Jew or Gentile, male or or female, slave or free. That's the heart of Galatians. And let's talk about that passage. Um, That's an important passage. You know, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male male nor female. And it... I, I think to some degree, it has been weaponized on the progressive side, kind of oh, yes. ignored on the conservative side, yes. um, and um, and weaponized on the progressive side in the sense that all, all distinctions, we're all caught up in a kind of a monism yeah. 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 of there never should have been distinctions. See, one of the things that's distinctive about your thought is you add temporality to it. So uh, Galatians uh, is yeah. often read as though there never should have been a distinction uh, between yes. Jew and Gentile. Yes. And I yes. think your reading of, of Galatians is, yes, there should, but history yes. has changed. We're in a new phase, so it's no exactly. longer an appropriate distinction. Exactly. Otherwise, you look back at the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and you read a book like Ezra or Nehemiah, which is very clear about not mixing the Jews, not mixing with their pagan neighbors. Hey, we did that before, and it got us into trouble, you know. Um, and so many people have looked back at that and said, "Oh, they were getting it wrong." And the answer is no, they were getting it right because the Messiah had not yet come. They were still quite properly living under Torah, and we have to learn from Galatians three exactly as you say the chronological sequence that the Torah was given for an express purpose, which was a time-limited purpose. That's the thing that it's taken theologians such a difficult time to get their heads around, Uh, you know, so that you have the Lutherans basically saying, Moses knows nothing of Christ, and you have the Reformed or the Calvinists saying, oh no, it's all continuous, the law is fulfilled in Christ. And and they they both fail to see that the law is God's good law, but it was given for the time until the Messiah came. And understanding that 
I, again, I hesitate to use the word dispensation because that, of course, means a lot of different things, especially <laughs> There's in There's landmines everywhere, um, aren't there? Well, I, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, but one has to pick one's way through those landmines rather carefully. And when you do, basically, it makes sense. For me, the result of good exegesis is having summarized it all to say, now, if you read the text straight through, you'll see that every line just makes sense, and it means what it was meant to mean, um, rather than, oh, how much clearer it would have been if Paul had said X or Y. If you read it, if, if you read it forward as a letter, yeah. but yeah. if you go yeah. hunting, treating it as an armory, yeah, then... Yeah, oh, quite, yeah. quite, exactly, exactly. And, and of course, that's the part of the irony here, is that people who've said the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, have often actually treated the Bible simply as a rag bag that they can reach in and pull out a text and say, there you are, this is true for all time. And I want to say, sure, it's true for all time, but it's true in the form that God has given it to us, i.e. this specific letter of Paul to the churches in southern Turkey, uh, probably mm. dated 48, 49, AD. And that context is really, really important. So you, you put this between the time when he has the confrontation with Peter in Antioch and then the later uh, Council of Jerusalem in yes. Acts when it's resolved. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, it's sort of resolved. I mean, mm. they do a kind of a holding job, like a lot of church councils. They manage to keep people happy for the moment. And often that's the best you can do in a church council. He says, having suffered through church <laughs> councils, um, that, that you have to you, you have to say, OK, this is where we are at the moment. Let's hang on to one another and say our prayers and see where God is taking us forward now. Um, and that's what they do. But yes, I've argued in my Paul biography and elsewhere uh, that uh, Galatians is early and that yes it is written before the council so that the meeting which paul describes in galatians 2 1 to 10 is not a pauline version of acts 15 mm. actually it doesn't fit people try to make it fit but it really doesn't um it is paul's more detailed account of the meeting in acts 11 right. where he and barnabas go to jerusalem with uh, financial help because the church is in need because of the upcoming famine and so on. I'm just looking at the passage. There's no longer Jew or Greek. This, I mean, that's interesting. It's not there mm -hmm. is or has been. Mm -hmm. We could do a perfect tense. We could do a, an imperfect tense. Yep. But there yep. is no longer Jew. I, I mean, I think we have a present tense, but with no longer. I don't have the Greek. Maybe that's a paraphrastic or something. But yeah, yeah. Well, clearly it, yes. something has changed. History yes. has changed. It's not that yes. Paul is revealing that there never should have been. It's, yes. it's yes. that we're yes. in a new time and it's not appropriate yes. anymore. Yeah, no, th that's exactly right. And and he says that very carefully um, when he's going through that the law was given to play a specific role. He calls it um, the paedagogos, which is a word for a, 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 a male like a babysitter almost, the, the one who look the slave who looks after the kid and makes sure the kid gets to school on time. He's not the one who teaches the, the, the child, the, the son, presumably. Oh, that's but, interesting. Uh, I've never heard that distinction. May, um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, a, a paedagogos. And, and this is uh, this then plays over into the other point that I'll make about in a minute, perhaps, um, that the a paedagogos is a slave, not a teacher, but the slave whose job it is to keep the kid by the, by the earlobe and drag him to school, make sure he gets there without misbehaving, and then he hands him over to the real teacher i um, think i think the cognate uh, threw me off pedagogy right so yeah, well, exactly yeah. exactly but but technically paedagogos means leading the child now of course we have interpreted that in terms of education yes um, but paida uh, and then uh, uh, ago, ago to, yeah to, right 
his Eileen. job is to take the child to school, make sure he gets there. Um, so, so, so the then, Torah is a slave too, maybe. If, if maybe well, we're pushing the metaphor too um, much, but the, the well, uh, and, and yeah, God yes, is the so, teacher, or am I creating a conceit well, out of a metaphor? No, that, that, that would be expanding it in a way that Paul doesn't. Okay, I think Paul would say though that Torah is God's good law given for a purpose. And that purpose is to get Israel to the point where the Messiah can come. Um, and this is all um, chapter four, verse four. Yes. When the fullness of time came, the plerema to Kronu, um, God sent forth his son. Uh, and so the Torah is given to get Israel to the finishing line, as it were, or if you like, to the starting line, to the messianic point. And once that's happened, the job is done. I use the illustration, which I've used often in lecturing, and I think students find it helpful, of the space rocket, which needs a particular booster to get it out of orbit and into deep space. Mm. I'm not sure if Richard Branson used one of those the other day when he went up, but still, um, you, you have a booster rocket because without it, you're not going to get into deep deep space and you'll fall back again but once you're out there somebody back in base presses a button and the booster rocket falls away not because it was a bad thing and we're happy to get rid of it but because it was a good thing whose job is now done Um, and that's more or less exactly what paul says about torah i'm glad that you brought up the beginning of four because i'm looking at the end of three galatians three and Mm -hmm. and and four and here i have my kingdom new testament you have to have video and you can see lines going back and forth (laughs) because i'm not i'm not really liking this chapter division uh, so oh, there's, there's no longer quite. Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no more longer male and female. And then right after that, the heir is a child. He is no different from a slave. So here we have slave yep. and free. Yep. Uh, and then we have um, born of a woman, right? It, uh, yep. Paul doesn't have to say born of a woman. He says born of a woman, yep. born yep. under the law. So I'm really thinking that th- this that this is not... A, an arbitrary list of all the distinctions Paul can can think of off off his head, off the top of his head, but rather distinctions that are relevant to the separation involved with the Torah. Right, the match, the you know the Messiah is going to be born of a woman, as Genesis three says. Um, you know, circumcision is it reflects a division between the genders. The slave and free distinction is a Torah distinction because we're still enslaved, mm-hmm. um, and so and male. So the male and female, Jew or Greek, that these specific distinctions yeah, yeah. are done away yes. with. Yes, not that, all distinctions that, we can think of. You see what I'm no, saying? That's that's right. But and we have to be careful in nuancing that as well. I was speaking to a conference some years ago where I was emphasizing um, chapter three, verse twenty-eight, and there was an African uh, African American woman theologian who was present who said, in a very nice way, she said, "You need to know that when we hear somebody like you saying this stuff, it sounds as if you're saying so you can all now become." honorary white males. And I said, no, that's exactly what I'm not saying. But I said, but if that's what you're hearing, I need to hear that that's what you're hearing, because I certainly am not intending that. And so, uh, you know, it's one of those cases where you put your hand on your mouth and you say, oh, dear, okay, I'll shut up for a bit. But um, so I want to say uh, as well that Paul goes on in his letters, think of First Corinthians, hmm. making it clear that men have certain distinctives and women have certain distinctives. And we've misconstrued those, but they are different. And he addresses men as men and women as women, as as when he addresses husbands and wives. Likewise, in the 
um, in the prison epistles, he talks about slaves and free, not, um, oh, well, we'll forget those distinctions. But no, you slaves, that's where you are at the moment. You have certain duties. But the point is, you are then all one in the Messiah. And then uh, it's a matter of cashing out what it looks like that, yes, you are still a slave. Yes, you are still a man or a woman or whatever. Like Paul for Paul, Romans 11, I am a Jew. Um, I, I, I'm you die or see me. Um, so even though Paul has said there is no Jew or Greek, um, it, for certain purposes, he needs to remind his hearers that he actually is Jewish. So he is part of the Jewish remnant, which is then on equal footing with the Gentile remnant. You hear what I'm saying? Yes. Um, it, because it doesn't mean the erasure of of all distinctions. It means the elimination of the theological evaluation based on those distinctions. That's now, now and, and then the theological, um, the wall that the Torah built up, um, mm-hmm. and I loved your ex- explication of if I build up a wall and then tear it down, yeah. you know, yeah. am yeah. I making the That's Messiah right. a sinner? I, I don't know how I missed that for so long, but I did. But well, I, I've but missed most, it. Most people, most people do, to be honest. I've missed it no longer. Um, uh, <laughs> so um, uh, the 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 theological, once you have these changes downstream, let's look at this way. However, at that stage, you didn't know God, and so you were enslaved to beings that in their proper nature are not gods. Okay, so if in the old world, humanity is enslaved to these demons, or these things that aren't God, I think Christians yeah. would generally understand that as fallen angels or something, even the Torah observant become in some sense enslaved to the powers of the world in the name of Torah. Um, but there's a kind of a, a um, that if the power of those, if, if the powers are broken, then eventually slavery itself must be broken. Well, yes. And that's the point at which, of course, Christianity's critics have said, well, you took your time about it, guys. Um, and part of the answer to that is, of course, that it was only possible, really, to eliminate slavery when um, Britain and America and other powers actually had their consciences pricked in the 18th century. But also, people have said rather cynically, because the Industrial Revolution was providing you with machines that would do some of the work instead. Now, I don't know how true that is. I'm not an 18th century historian, though I've dabbled. Um, But yes, uh, from the beginning, it was a stain on the conscience of the church. And many early Christian teachers were aware of this as a major problem. Uh, But then it's parallel to what we will look back or Christians will look back in a hundred years time, if there is still a world and a church in a hundred years time and say, you know, those guys in 2021, they were still driving those cars around, which were using gasoline and which were polluting the planet and causing global warming and so on. And they knew that, and yet they still did it. How on earth could they square that with their conscience? And I say, yeah, I put my hand up. I'm not actually sure how I could run my family life without driving a car, but um, we hopefully we'll get there. So it's a loose parallel, but you see what I'm saying? Right. Personally, I might choose a different uh, moral affront as as, uh, um, <laughs> as something future generations will look back. But we can we we can uh, you know set that aside for a moment. Sure, which sure. one will look back and say, I can't believe we did that? You know, to speak to this issue of the economics because that's that is my day job um i think that there i think the industrial revolution did make the cost of slavery the comparative advantage of slavery higher but there were still ideologies of resistance which went way we held slaves 
far longer than it made economic sense to hold slaves. And you know, you ever hear the story of the dis? You know, you heard economics referred to as the dismal science, right? That you've heard that phrase. <laughs> okay. With the background is Ruskin and Carlyle and the traditionalists calling yeah. poetry is the gay science. Um, and economics is the dismal science because okay. these economists are telling us that slavery is a bad way to manage an economy, that it's better <laughs> to use machines. But mm -hmm. as Aristotle said, if there are no slaves, then there can be no poets. So the dismal science will destroy the gay science, and he blames mm -hmm. Exeter Hall. So you've got evangelicals uh, pushing uh, the uh. Industrial Revolution and anti-slavery, saying not only is it wrong, but it's inefficient. And in America, yes. the South, even now, is economically behind the North, because slavery was not just an evil system, no. it was a stupid system. A stupid system, yeah, yes. Right. yes, um, yes. And, yes. Uh, no, well, that's very interesting. I didn't know that, and it's why I look to people like you to enlighten me on matters on which I'm very ignorant. But yeah, no, that, that does make sense. But I I think for Paul, it's so woven into the fabric of how Greco-Roman society worked that when he's writing to people in Turkey or, or, or Greece or wherever, um, there's no way he can say, by the way, you all ought to give up your slaves um, tomorrow. Um, we, we needn't stop on this one. But, but I mean, it's, the other thing which has to be said always when we're discussing this today is that in the ancient world, slavery had nothing whatever to do with the color of your skin. Anyone could become a slave. An emperor could become a slave. All he had to do was to lose a was battle a war, yes. in a crucial war. Right. And he'd be hauled off if he, if he escaped with his life. Um, and, and so uh, the Mediterranean world was a rich mixture of different colors. So it had nothing of the connotations that 18th and 19th century slavery has um, for, for us North Atlantic folks. Yes, anyway. and 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 by the way, I, I I would take more seriously the Epicureans of today. Uh, if the oh, yes. Epicureans of then were calling for the yeah. abolition of slavery, none of them seem to have been as far out on the edge as Paul was, you know, <laughs> um, in dealing with Anisimus and Philemon. So, um, quite, quite, yeah, um, exactly. All right, so let's kind of bring this. Circumcision is clearly a central idea here, mm -hmm. um, and you're what i think you're doing is you're breaking down the wall of division between the community and autobiography sections of galatians early on yep. and the theological soteriological divisions say sure. in the middle of the book so, sure. so can you tell us more about you know how those fit together i mean that might be too well, broad <laughs> well 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 i mean it, it, this is so fascinating and and galatians is quite unusual in that respect in that it does have this long autobiographical section which most letters don't i mean you get a bit of autobiography here and there for instance in second corinthians but nothing in the same order and part of the the reason for the autobiography is that the rival teachers who have been to Galatia have been telling the Galatian churches that Paul had only given them part of the true message and that Paul himself had got his message from the Jerusalem apostles and that they, the rival teachers, know that the, the Jerusalem apostles would have added this whole bit about circumcision. And therefore, they're trying to say, so Paul got it wrong. He was a second-hand, second-rate apostle, and you can discount him and take it from us because we know the real guys back in Jerusalem. And so Paul has so to Paul's go So Paul's a messenger of Jerusalem who bungled the message. That's exactly. that's your mirror reading. For, the, the Paul's yes, yes. arguments seem to be against that argument. I, I, exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, he's building into that argument 
um, all the stuff about people wanting to compel other people to be circumcised. And unless we understand the political dynamics of that, we will translate it out into 16th century soteriology, which is quite wrong. In other words, the desire to get circumcised or to have other people get circumcised is not about, um, you know, like you imagine Luther's Catholic interlocutors wanting to drag his converts back into the Catholic Church and make them good um, uh, Catholic dogma-observing people instead of Protestants. That's completely not what's going on here. Uh, The sociological situation, as I've described it, uh, actually, this is something we don't often think about. But when people became Christians from a pagan background in the ancient world, the biggest change in their lives was that they stopped worshipping the gods. I mean, I don't know how much of my study you can see around me, but I've got all my household gods here, some ornaments, some little statues, some pictures, some bits and pieces, not to mention all the books. Um, And do I worship them? Well, no, I don't. But you see the point. In an ancient pagan home, you would have little statues of the divinity uh, of your household gods. And then on the corner of the street, there would be a statue of a god or goddess and then there would be the big ones in the middle of the town or city etc and there would be processions there would be rituals there would be sacrifices and everybody was expected to join in because the gods mattered the gods were the invisible inhabitants of the city and if the visible ones didn't pay them proper respect the gods would get angry and you'd have a plague or a flood or a fire or or something pretty nasty or hostile enemy action and when that happened people would say oh it's your fault because you went slack on uh, worshipping the gods you didn't turn up for the processions etc now that's the normal situation when somebody becomes a christian they become monotheists paul says in first thessalonians you turned from idols to serve the living and true god and that means that your neighbors are going to say so who wasn't there for the sacrifice yesterday watch out we've got your number bad things are going to happen and we'll know who to blame so the christians have to learn that they come under the jewish exemption Mm. because the romans ever since julius caesar uh 60 or 100 years before uh, had the jews had been given by the romans permission that they would worship their own god and not the pagan gods. They would pray for the emperor. They would pray for Rome, but they would not pray to the emperor or to the pagan gods. I think I'd offer sacrifices for him, but not to him. Exactly. And that's a major distinction. And the Jews accepted that, and basically everybody knew about it. And naturally, in a pagan city, many people looked at the Jews and thought, well, they're weird. We don't know why they won't worship the gods like the Maybe they're atheists, actually. That was a regular slur. But now you've got these ex-pagans, and they are claiming the same. They're saying we are claiming the Jewish exemption, but are they really Jews? Exactly. And so you can imagine the civic authorities saying to the Jewish leaders in Derbe or Lystra or Iconium or or Pisidian Antioch, who are these people? They're not worshipping the gods. They say they're with you. And the Jewish leaders say, we don't know who they are. Some strange guy called Paul came into town and told us some strange story about a a would-be Messiah who got crucified. and, and, And we don't know what's going on. And the Civic authorities are saying, sort it out or we're coming for you one way or another. Meanwhile, the Jerusalem church, who are under huge pressure from the non-Christian majority in Jerusalem, 
because they say, we hear that some of your folk out on the frontiers are fraternizing with pagans. We know what happens when people start doing that. People That's what Deuteronomy us. warned us about. You know, So you've got this pressure on the church in Galatia. Get yourselves in line, get the men circumcised, and then we'll all heave a sigh of relief because we'll be able to say to everybody, it's all right, we're keeping Torah, so we really are Jews. So, I, so I wonder about 612, yeah. whether yeah, yeah, it's yeah, exactly. alluding to that, in, in, exactly. in the sense that, that maybe they were saying, if the Christians abuse the Jewish exemption, the Jews will lose the, uh, here, the, the people who want to make a fine yeah, showing yeah. in the flesh, who are trying to force exactly. you into getting circumcised for this purpose only, that exactly. they may avoid persecution for the Messiah's cross. That is precisely the point. And it's interesting that, that we wait till very nearly the end of the letter for Paul to drop that final uh, brick into, into place. That, that Paul says they're not interested in actually keeping Torah. All they want is to put on a good public display. Oh, yes, we're all fine here. We're all good Jews. So please go away and leave us alone. And Paul says, Paul, the ex-Pharisee, he knows perfectly well what genuine Torah observance looks like. He says this in chapter five. He says they are not interested in keeping the law at all. They just that that's the passage you just you just quoted. Um, and and but in chapter five as well, he indicates that they're just playing around. They're just hypocrites. They're just play acting. Uh, and so once we understand the complexities of the social and cultural and particularly theological situation, this is about a community that is refusing to worship the gods is claiming the Jewish exemption and is getting in trouble for it. And Paul says, if that's the way you're playing the game, you are pretending that the Messiah has not died and been raised. The new age has not been inaugurated. We are still back in the old world where Jews are marked out by circumcision. And the whole point of Galatians is that the new thing has happened. This is where the so-called apocalyptic school gets it right, even though they make many other mistakes, that the new thing has happened. As a result, God's new world has been inaugurated. And the marks that you bear of that are clear right the way through, sharing the faith of Abraham, walking in the spirit and not in the flesh, and so on and so on. There's um. You know, something that you've been writing about for some time about Galatians, and obviously it's in your Galatians commentary, which I think is maybe a little startling to some people. It was to me when I first heard it. By the way, we're about half an hour in, so I'm just okay. going to I'm going to look for cues as sure. to what, when you get sick of me. Um, <laughs> the, the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. Um, mm-hmm. And then you go on essentially to explicate in your translation, that is his family. So your argument is that the single seed thing that's going on in Galatians 3 isn't a single person, the Messiah. I mean, it might be because there's a single person, then there's a single family, but it, it's, it's a family. The, the argument here is ultimately yeah. there's one family. There's one yes. Abrahamic family. Yes, the word sperma, meaning seed, regularly means family, uh, which is a collective noun. So you can talk about a single family, but of course, a family includes many people. And this is one of the classic examples where Paul uses the word Christos to mean Messiah, square brackets, and his people, like he does at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 1, when he says, is Christ divided, mm. when they're following different teachers and so on. He says, you're cutting up the Messiah. And likewise, in 1 Corinthians 12, as the body is one and has many members, so too is the Messiah. So he can see the Messiah 
as both the individual Jesus and as the one who sums up God's people in himself, so that what is true of him is true of them and vice versa. I first tumbled to this, ooh, back when I was teaching in Montreal. I remember doing a Bible study with some folks from the church that Maggie and I were attending at the time. And we were tripping up over Galatians 3 because it seemed to be so artificial. And I was working on it anyway for scholarly reasons. And verse 16 of chapter 3 goes exactly with the very difficult verse 20, um, well, 19, 20, 21, Um, but then particularly with verse 29. And you have to remind yourself the whole time that the argument of chapter 3 is designed to come into land at verse 29. If you belong to the Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed. And in the middle of that is the very strange and dense argument, verses 19, 20, and 21, where the law is given until the seed arrives. And the law was given through the mediator, who is Moses, but the mediator is not the mediator of the single seed. But God is one, and therefore, as in Romans 3.30, God desires the single family. God is one, and therefore, he will justify Jew and Gentile the same way by faith. You, this is where you really do need Romans Not the 3 mediator on the of the one means yeah, the one exactly. community, the, the one, one seed. The one seed family, yes, right. exactly. Okay. Um, because Moses has given a Torah which specifically says to the Jews, you've got to keep separate. Yes. So... So if you say that Torah is the thing that matters, you will end up with two families, a Jewish family and a Gentile family. And Paul says, but God is one. And the implication, as in Romans 3, is and therefore he desires the single family. And that's what the rest of the passage goes on to explain. So, again, the separation of Torah was a good and valid separation. But um, and going to Romans, the law is good. We're the we're the problem. Uh, not, yes. not the law. Well, that's right. And the problem of Torah was the material on which it was working. That's the point of 2 Corinthians 3, right. where he contrasts the effect of his ministry with the effect of Moses' ministry. And many people think Paul is contrasting himself with Moses, but he's not. He and Moses are both doing God's work, but he is able to address people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, whereas Moses was addressing people whose hearts were hardened, he says. Um, And and all sorts of things play out from that. So does Torah Um, have a kind of unexpected purpose in the sense that you can read the Tanakh, or the Torah, and you can get the sense that this is a permanent community. Although the blessings and cursings, there is there are hints at the end of Deuteronomy. Wait a minute, there's something after. But you can still go a long way before you see that. And then yeah. when when the Messiah is crucified, it's almost like, oh wait, there was a deeper purpose for the for the Torah, which is yeah. to reveal who we are, to reveal that no law yeah. other than yeah. the Messiah would be enough. Yeah, well, but, yes. But that's hidden some, it's to some degree, I think, isn't Absolutely. it? It's, it's not, there's an apocalypse in the in the yes, crucifixion is, and resurrection. There is, there's an apocalypse that reveals more of the purpose of the Torah. Th- there is indeed. I think I argued many years ago that what we get in the Gospels, among many other things, is a new hermeneutic, a new lens through which to read the Old Testament, rather like Jesus explaining the scriptures to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that in the light of the crucified and risen Messiah, Oh, my goodness. Now the story makes sense. Now we can see this, of course, was where it was all going. But we can also understand why we couldn't understand it before, because it only makes sense with this key. And that one of the fascinating things about Paul's theology 
is the enormous sense that it makes of so much that the sort of undesigned coincidence of it, if you like, is almost a, um, a theological argument for, for its own validation as it stands. So that um, the, 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 the difficulty has been in the modern period that we've all lived in the shadow of Immanuel Kant with his yes. uh, great big ethic hanging in the sky. Numenor all... phenomena distinction and religion right. is you know, non-rational. And, I'm Absolutely. Sorry, right. but, but with ethics as this um, uh, categorical imperative bearing down on us. And so we think, oh, the law is forcing me to be this and to do that. And then here comes the gospel and says, we don't need to bother about all that stuff. And, and that's a very modern um, dilution and distortion of what Paul is actually saying. All right, so so works of the law, erga ta, ta, ta namu, tun, tun, yeah. tun namu. Um, I mean, this is what you're saying here is, it's going to be shocking to a lot of people, but I think a lot of scholars have, Scholars, I think, have caught up with the fact that this is not the the natural law or just general goodness, that this is Torah distinctiveness, right? Works of the law. Absolutely. And and everybody in the ancient world who knew anything about Jews knew that Jews kept a lazy day once a week, that they did strange operations on their baby boys, and that they, they didn't eat the normal food of most people because pork was the meat of ordinary common people. Um, So people were puzzled that the Jews did this and they knew that it marked them out. And we've got many texts from Greco-Roman authors as well as Jewish authors who make that very clear. These are the works of Torah. And there's a famous text in Qumran which refers to the works of Torah which interestingly mark out one Jewish sect against the others. In other words, they're not simply trying to amass um, brownie points for uh, in, in God's um, final audit. They are saying, if we keep Torah this way, this will show that we really are the people whom God will vindicate when he finally acts. So the works of Torah are specific markers of a community, which then mark out that community as the ones who will know that they're the real, the real deal uh, as they look forward. Maybe our own sociology is captured uh, catching up with Galatians in that a lot of commentary work is done when there's a general British consensus, there's a general American consensus. And now that we're so hyper-factionalized, the well, Essenes, well. you know, we know people who are like these groups in their own way. There's different markers. There might be MAGA hats. There might be coexist bumper stickers. Uh-huh. But we all have uh-huh. our little works of the law that uh-huh. the, the, uh-huh. are different families. Yes, that, that's that's very true. And and the neighbors will notice if you don't fly the flag, as it were. Um, I mean, we, we've had in Oxford the last month, uh, the, the month of June was designated in Britain as as gay pride month um, and or even just pride month um, and flags all over the place. And if a college doesn't hang out that flag, then some of its own students will be getting onto the governing body to say, uh, why aren't you part of this team? Whatever. Now, irrespective of the issue, it's that kind of thing. What flag are you flying? What what outward signs are you showing that you belong to the movement which we all think you ought to belong to now? And that, I don't think it's a healthy way to do politics in a, in a democratic society. Actually, yes. Western um, civilization, who has bewitched you? I, that we do well, feel well, increasingly yes, bewitched, yes. don't we? There is a bit of that. So there's this curse of the law material. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, give us a sense of what the curse of the law is. And cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is a verse that I've struggled with a lot. Um, uh, So can you speak about that a little? Yeah, people have often gone to that and said, there you are, Um, Paul knew that Jesus of Nazareth had been 
crucified, therefore he was cursed by the law, therefore he couldn't be the Messiah. But then he discovered that God had raised Jesus from the dead. So he said, oh, therefore the law was wrong to curse him, therefore we have to do away with the law and have a different way of salvation. That is an incredible low-grade distortion of what Paul is actually saying. Paul is here retrieving the entire narrative from Deuteronomy 27 to 30. Well, 27 to 30 plus 32 gives you the covenantal story that if Israel gets everything right, then the blessings will follow. And if if Israel gets everything wrong, and Deuteronomy says, which, by the way, we know is going to happen, then the curses will follow, and the worst of the curses is exile. And it's only after exile, Deuteronomy 30, that God will then uh, transform your heart so that you will love him from your heart, and then things will go forward. And that narrative from the end of Deuteronomy is appealed to by Jews in Paul's day, like Josephus, as a long-range prophecy of how Israel's story is going to work out. It's not a bit of abstract moralism, which could apply at at any point in time. It's very definitely a narrative, which is then, of course, picked up in the story of um, the books of Samuel and Kings. This is how it plays out. This is why Israel goes into exile, and so on and so forth. So what Paul is saying is not, uh, oh, how stupid the law was to curse Jesus, but, hey, God gave these promises to Abraham, but Abraham's family were the people to whom Deuteronomy said, watch out because you will go under the curse because you will commit idolatry, etc., etc. So the problem is God has made these spectacular worldwide promises to Abraham, and it looks as though the promises are going to be snuffed out. They're all going to be dead and gone. So the Messiah, Israel's representative, comes to the point where the Torah rightly pronounces the curse and bears the curse in himself. And then verse 13 and 14 works so superbly, so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles and that we, that is, we Jews who believe, might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, the promises had got into a logjam because of Israel's sin producing the curse, and the Torah was right to pronounce that curse. Jesus has come under the Torah's rightful curse on behalf of his people, so that okay. now... All right, so it's a rightful breath. curse of the Torah. Yeah. Um, this it may, it may seem like a very subtle distinction, but I think it's an important yes. distinction, oh, which yes, is yes. that the Torah rightly curses Jesus, as opposed to the Torah rightly curses disobedient Israel, which violates the Torah, which is a major point in Galatians. You've signed up. You got circumcised. You signed up for the whole deal, including the judgment, and that Jesus goes and occupies that point of cursing, but Jesus is not properly cursed. Um, No, no. It's he bore the curse, um, becoming a curse by being hanged on the tree, um, and, and you perhaps at that point need Romans 8, 3 and following where Paul says um, that uh, he, he, that God condemned sin in the flesh of Christ, that Paul does not say God condemned Jesus. He says God condemned sin in the flesh of the Messiah. Condemned so, or punished or something like yeah, punished, punished sin. Is it condemned yeah, or punished? Yeah, yeah, yeah punished. It's condemned. It's condemned. It's, sorry. Um, Katekrinen from Katekrino. Um, um, but but it I comes to no, 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 it comes to the same thing. <laughs> yeah. um, 
because that is definitely penal and it is definitely substitutionary, but it isn't God punished Jesus. It's God punished sin. In And as you say, that's a subtle distinction, but actually Paul knows what he's doing there and it's important. Well, and I, you're, you're probably going to think I'm over reading this, but I can't help but notice, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, is not a direct quote from the from the Septuagint. The Septuagint well, says, cursed to theu or apu to theu, Uh, is everyone who hangs on a tree. In other words, I'm going to argue slightly here that Paul is deliberately leaving out, and it's in the middle of the Septuagint verse. It's not like he left off the end of the verse or the beginning. Right in the center, in uh, Deuteronomy 21, we're told that it's a a cursing apotutheo. uh, Um, So it's a curse out of God. Um, But Jesus is hung on a tree, but he doesn't seem to, in Galatians, in Paul's interpretation of Galatians, he doesn't seem to be cursed of God. Um, if you go back and look at the Deuteronomy passage, yep. Jesus didn't yep. do anything worthy of being right cursed. Here. Yeah, go ahead. Is that your Septuagint? Yeah, it is. Um, and, and you're right about 21, 23. Um, and then the other, the other reference says 27, 26. Um, uh, Oh, no, that's, sorry, that's just every, curses everyone who doesn't abide by what's written in the law, of course. Yeah, so that's right. I don't think I draw that out in the commentary, and you you probably check that out, but I, I don't think I make that point in my commentary. Of course, this is what happens when you write a book. Somebody points out what you missed out. Um, <laughs> the book is only 400 pages well, long. Well, cert- I'm certainly not trying to point out anything you missed. No, 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 no. Dr. Dr. Rebeon, on Hupo Theu. Yep, pos- yeah, no, I've got it. I've yeah, got it. Uh, um, epi... Um, so I, mean, I, I see that as maybe a conspicuous um, well it might be it yeah. might be except that I think for Paul simply saying epicataritos cursed who is doing this curse excuse me um, you know he, he, this, it may be a periphrastic way of referring to God and it may be that he's just pulled back a little bit but I would say if Paul says Torah says cursed is everyone who then I think he's clearly meaning that this is God's curse. But um, that, that's a nice point, which we could argue this way and that. Right. Well, I'm, I'll hold it lightly. Let me just add, what else might it be? An inversion of what's going on in Deuteronomy in the sense that in Deuteronomy, God curses the land. Remember, this isn't about who's cursed, who's on the tree. This is about the land being defiled by him yeah, being left up there. So is this right. an inversion in which the Eretz Israel is cursing yeah. God rather than God cursing Eretz Israel? So... Um, I'd be careful about that. <laughs> I, I told you you wouldn't you wouldn't agree, but yeah, that's yeah. but it's fun well, to talk okay. um, sure, and sure, um, sure. even to to have to be rebutted. Okay, so um, we're down to the last ten minutes. If you'll give me another, sure, sure. another another few minutes will be all right. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right. Uh, you, I'll, I'll, I'll wait to I'll look for signs, um, <laughs> semi-own from you. That um, Okay, so um, I just something else that kind of popped up in, in my mind. Um, this isn't so much about – and I, didn't, I, didn't, I haven't finished the commentary. I, I'm well into it. All right. okay. But in, in five, a little yeast works its, works its way through the whole lump. Um, is this an Exodus theme here? Is, is he, because Exodus is, is key to your understanding of Galatians. Yeah, is this, yeah. Well, it's a Passover theme, obviously, because yes. leaven is, is what you get rid of at Passover time. I think by this stage, this has become proverbial. Paul quotes the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5, of course. Um, and I think if you check the rabbinic parallels, it's so widely known that this is what happens with leaven, that uh, it could be that because Paul is thinking, but he's always thinking about Exodus. I mean, Exodus is all over the place because Exodus is the primal redemption. And Paul is talking about the, the ultimate redemption so that you get Exodus overtones in many places. So I wouldn't be surprised at the same time. Um, uh, where are we? That's um in um, that's that's five uh nine five nine, yeah. five, nine. because in in that passage five seven to twelve it's very quick fire rapid fire stuff um uh, you know you were running well who's cutting on you this w- wasn't from the one who called you little leaven um uh, i'm sure that you won't think any different but the one who's um, messing you up will bear his bear his crime um th- th- this is kind of scattergun stuff and i wouldn't want to say that the leaven <coughs> excuse me that the leaven reference there must be to do with passover though as i say Paul's got Passover in his head most of the time. He does, right? And Jesus said, avoid the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? And this is the leaven of the Pharisees right here. Yes, absolutely. So so, um, people do tend to um, go right to homiletical or right to current or right to political too quickly. And the the Messiah has to be formed in us in the sense of understanding what's Mm. being said to these people. But I would ask you to maybe build a little bit of a hermeneutical bridge in our final minutes, because we seem to be in a kind of a Galatians moment um, where we're where national identity, fear of persecution, markers of in in our in my world, it's Christian nationalism on one hand, and then it's also a progressive, you know, of, of yeah, something yeah. Um, uh, God hates flags, um, you know, versus yes, yes, MAGA yes. hats, right? Uh, so I, I, there seems to be, and we seem bewitched. So I mean, how would you apply Galatians to now? Yeah, I I would say I actually it's funny I didn't know you were going to ask that, but I have a I have a quotation here which I will which I will read out to you. I don't know if you can don't know if you can see that. Um, uh, the, 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 the family, that's the church, is called to be a worship-based, spiritually renewed, multi-ethnic, gender-blind in leadership, polychrome, mutually supportive, outward-facing, culturally creative, chastity-celebrating, socially responsible, fictive kinship group. That's my Pauline definition of the church. Uh, I'll send that to you if you like. I'd love I that, wrote yes. This- I read that in an article a few, a few weeks ago because I think what we've seen over the last 400 years in Western society is a church that was so fixated on figuring out how people get to heaven as to ignore the message which is there in 
all of Paul's letters and right across the New Testament, which is the unity of the church across all traditional divisions. And for me, what Paul says in Galatians about being all one in Christ Jesus is then coming out in celebratory mode in Romans 15, Romans 15, 7 to 13, where he says, therefore, I want you with one heart and voice to glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, because it's when the church is living as a single family, precisely across these divisions, that it is being a sign to the world that God in Christ has done and is doing a new thing. And as long as the church stays in its different ethnic huddles, oh, we are a white church, a black church, a Polish church, a Spanish church, or this or whatever. As long as we're doing that, then the power, the principalities and powers think they've won. This is part of the point of Ephesians 1 to 3 as well. And so my response to all the fuss about whether it's Black Lives Matter or whatever, people have said to me, oh, Tom, how can you support that? Because it's a Marxist-inspired uh, organization. I know Black Lives Matter itself comes out of that Marxist-inspired um, um, social, um, whether it calls itself progressive or whatever movement. But the point is, the church has been falling asleep on the job. We should have been out there right. modeling right. what right. a multicultural community cheerfully worshipping God together, what that looks like, showing people that it's possible and that if you follow Jesus, you can do it. So, because so these we political have, movements become like fictive kinship groups without, exactly, uh, with, without a messiah to center on. Exactly, which right. is almost impossible. And you can say, oh, we want multiculturalism. But without Jesus, that's really difficult. You know, some societies have tried it for a while. Europe at the moment is very anxious about that as we get more and more refugees and immigrants from other parts of the world. Many European countries like Hungary and parts of France are saying, actually, we don't want that. We, we are our, ourselves, thank you very much, and we don't want all these extra people. But in, in America and in Britain, we have been melting pot countries, and but often we've tried to do it as though it was possible without Jesus. And I think the message of of Galatians is, no, it is a noble dream, but you'll only get there through that route. I, through the law, died to the law. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but, but Christ lives in me. That's the center of it all. And the church ought to be modeling that. And I see this, and I hope my commentary will be a word for our times in that respect. Hmm. Oh, my friend Bishop Joseph Garlington of Reconciliation International has been saying for decades, in an ethnically a divided society. We can add gender divided, and we don't talk about this enough, generationally divided, yeah, yeah, because yeah. John is sent to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the yeah, fathers. Yeah. Only the church can model unity, um, which probably doesn't mean imitating existing movements, but no, bringing this no. distinctively Pauline cr yeah, Christian approach. Yeah. A Pauline Christian approach, and <clears throat> of course, as I said nearly an hour ago, Revelation chapter chapter seven, the, the, the great company, which no one can number of every kindred and nation and tribe and tongue. And this is not something for which we have to wait. This is a vision of the heavenly community right now, that this is what Jesus people actually look like. And on the rare occasions when you see it in reality in a church building, it is a beautiful thing, yes. a very powerful thing. Oz Guinness recently on this podcast said, Oz Guinness on this podcast a few yeah. weeks ago said that one of the church fathers called Christians a third race, right? Yeah, You've got Greeks absolutely. and barbarians, a new race. And so you're not getting rid of ethnicity in some sense. Uh, I mean, you yeah. keep the old one, but the more powerful yeah. identity 
the more yep. powerful yep. ethne nation is yes. incorporated into the Messiah. Yeah, you have to be so careful how you say that. I have been criticized for using the phrase third race, etc. I think it's exactly what Paul is talking about, say, at the end of 1 Corinthians 10, where he talks about being blameless before Jews and Greeks and the Church of God, the Ecclesia Tuthiu, as a third entity, not Jewish, not Greek, but defined simply in terms of Jesus. I've said to people till I'm blue in the face, it's not about starting a new religion, which happens to have this person called Jesus. It is all about Jesus himself. Either he is who we say he is, and in which case the whole world is different as a result, or we're all wasting our time and we ought to go away and do something more important. Um, but for those of us who believe that Jesus really is and was Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord, then he is the fixed point around which everything else now moves. And that's the message of Galatians. Interesting. Did we run the, go do something else because we ran the race in vain? And as divided as well, we are, one can be tempted yep, to yep. feel like we've run the race in vain. Is there anything yep, else yep. you want to add? We talked about your Galatians <laughs> commentary. I want to mention NT Right Online um, oh, thank you. Yes, as, yes. Uh, as a great resource. Um, yeah, and actually, it, actually, I did some lectures on Galatians based on this commentary a few weeks ago. I did them online because I couldn't get on a plane and go to Texas as has been planned. And what I'm now going to do is uh, I'm going to shorten those lectures slightly and turn them into a new course on Galatians for NT Write Online. Um, so we did a course on Galatians six years ago, I think, for NTW Online. Yes. Um, but this will be a new course incorporating the insights from the commentary. Well, I look forward to it, and I think that um, pastors ought to be, you know, downloading this for the churches. The, the The fees are very modest, and there's also you can do some bulk. You can get a whole lot of NT right. Sure, sure. Um, we live in an age where you can get the best scholarship for almost nothing. It's <laughs> amazing that we spend so much time watching junk. Oh, anything you want to add? Um, we're we're right at our hour. I always want to oh, make sure that we didn't well, miss anything. I no, I, I think we've said most of it. It's just I I, I do want to come back and and highlight. It's partly the end of chapter two, but then it comes again and again that actually the book is all about Jesus. And it isn't about theories of salvation. It isn't about, it isn't about theories of sociology. It's about Jesus and what it meant and means to belong to the community that is created by Jesus' death and resurrection. And I wouldn't want people listening to me talking about Galatians to think that Jesus was just kind of a figure who enables certain theories to become true. The theories all point back to Jesus, and, and he ought to be in the middle of all our discussions. And he certainly is in the middle of this commentary, in the Messiah, yes. uh, incorporated yes. into the Messiah. Um, Jesus is the driver, um, and Galatians is a community that was supposed to live out Jesus's idea of what his death and resurrection would do. Here's my... Yes. Kindle version of it. If you're a Kindle person, Tom Wright can hold up his hardcover. I think most of my peeps are hardcover people. Uh, N.T. Wright, um, I'm gonna. You always say call me Tom, so I, I find sure. it a little difficult to do that, but I'll I'll try for it. Thank you, no thank you for your work, and thank you for uh, being with us again today and well, for your generosity. Well, thank you very much, and it's good to be face to face, albeit electronically. <laughs> and um, you know, maybe in the maybe in the summer um, at Wycliffe Hall um, in person. Um, uh, well, possibly, possibly. Yeah, for, yes. for that entrepreneurial leadership program. Okay. All right, thank That's you. Very best. Best. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and improve our national conversation by sharing it with some friends.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.